Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. Take a moment and stand with me for the reading of the word this morning. We're in Acts chapter 13, and I'll pick up the reading in verse 22. Acts chapter 13, verse 22. And the scripture says, He raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. And before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are new to the Bible, just let me encourage you, read it, and you will find out that the Bible is filled with imperfect people. That's right. I remember when my father became a believer a long, long time ago, He once told me that he read the Bible, and he said, when I finished reading the Bible, he said, I was just so surprised, and I remember thinking, there is nothing that could happen in the world that is not in this book. And he said, I realize this is a different book. Like, this is just a different kind of book. If you came to church and you thought, well, I'm going to be awkward because it's going to be filled with perfect people, okay, that's because you see the backs of their heads, I see the front of their faces, and that doesn't mean those are marred with imperfections, okay? That means that the people that I know, when I look at them, I know they're not perfect. And I love this about this particular passage. It is going to tell you and teach you this very, very critical lesson. Here it is. Imperfect people need a perfect Savior. That's it. We're imperfect, okay? And that should help you if you've been striving and striving and striving to take your best pictures ever for Facebook, okay? You don't have to, right? Because just acknowledge you're an imperfect person. And that imperfection teaches us two lessons in the text today. Imperfect people need a perfect Savior, so here they are. God uses imperfect people. We take no credit, okay? God sent a perfect Savior. He alone gets the glory. That's it. It's that simple. Imperfect people need a perfect Savior. God uses imperfect people, so we take no credit. God sent a perfect Savior. He alone gets the glory. And because we're imperfect, it creates within us an understanding that whatever we do, we do with the spirit of humility. We don't do it to pat ourselves on the back. We don't do it to assume we're special. We just do it with the spirit of humility. So 
let's just talk about that briefly, okay? So go back with me in the text, take your Bibles, and go back with me to Acts chapter 13. We actually start this passage back in verse, um, in verse 14, where we pick up, well, we'll start in verse 13, that's where we'll pick it up. And here's the passage I want you to see, and I'll pick up a reading at verse 13. And Paul and his companions, first missionary journey, Paul's going on. Uh, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, that's where we were wrapped up last week. Paul and Barnabas are traveling. They're the first ones sent out. They're going to share the gospel. They head to the island of Cyprus. From there, they're about to get on another ship. They go to the mainland, and that's where John Mark bails, okay? And that'll come up later in the book of Acts. But just watch this. Here's what we find from there. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now, for just a moment, this is a different Antioch than where they were sent from. There's 14 different Antiochs in the, in the New Testament, okay? So this is a different one. If you say, I, I thought they were sent from the church of Antioch, like did they make a full circle and come back again? Nope, completely different Antioch. And there they go on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now, if you're unfamiliar with how the Jewish system worked, here's how it worked. They didn't have churches like we have. They had a temple. That's where they went to worship in Jerusalem. They had only one temple. They went there to worship. But they had these synagogues in various villages where they taught the Bible. They were basically like Bible schools, okay? And so that's where they kind of gathered. And they were more than Bible schools. They were their community place. They were where they went, okay? They weren't really the center of worship. That was the temple. But they were kind of a teaching venue, And so that's where Paul goes, both he and Barnabas. And I love this in the text. Notice what's highlighted there. On the Sabbath day, they went in the synagogue and sat down. Now, remember how I said, we come with humility. This is Paul, okay? He's got a lot of things to say. But he doesn't walk in and say, hey, I'm here, okay? Uh, Move over, okay? He He slides in, just kind of sits in the back row and settles down, okay? And I learned from that this very simple truth That in humility, start with your best known opportunities to talk about Jesus. Don't be dreaming of something far away. Uh, Just start with your best known opportunities to talk about Jesus. Paul goes to the synagogue. Now, next week, you'll find out that the Jewish people in the synagogue don't really care for what he has to say. It's the Gentiles that get all wound up and excited about the gospel. That's great. But Paul doesn't start there. He starts with the people he knows. And we do that not by dreaming of something big and better and greater, but just starting with the people we know. We don't assume that we could do that. We trust God with that. But instead, we just say, hey, listen, these are my best-known opportunities to talk about Jesus, and that's where I'm going to talk about Jesus. And that's what Paul does. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now, here's the second idea. In humility, prepare yourself to tell others about Jesus. Don't assume that you don't need to be prepared You and I should be constantly, I mentioned this last week because a friend mentioned it to me, retelling to ourselves the gospel so that when given the opportunity, we're ready to tell the gospel. And by the way, um, if you pray for an opportunity, then you better definitely prepare, okay? Like I remember when I was in seminary, I was delivering, um, I was selling medical equipment to get myself through seminary and Kim was working and California's expensive kind of like New Jersey, okay? And, and so there we were kind of working through that. I was taking a wheelchair to this individual, and I had prayed for an opportunity to share the gospel with him. So, you know, it wasn't that I, I wasn't working for a Christian organization. I was going to school, but I still prayed for an opportunity to share. 
because this man was fairly influential. And, and as I walked in, um, his manager said to me, um, so-and-so would like to see you. And I remember going in to the room, and I'd written a paper for him because he asked me a question about the Bible. And this is what he said. I, I said, Lord, if you give me an opportunity to share the gospel, I want to be ready to share the gospel. And the man sitting from his hospital bed looked at me and said, um, thank you for your paper. I read it. I said, cool, I'm glad it helped you. He said, uh, are you a Christian? I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I am a Christian. And here came the next question. What is a Christian? I remember thinking right there, this is the opportunity, <laughs> okay? Like, like, okay, Lord, sometimes you give subtle opportunities, like this is the opportunity, right? And I remember thinking later, like I prayed for it and I should have expected it, but even then it caught me off guard, right? If you were praying for an opportunity, then you better prepare yourself for the opportunity. Because look at what happens in the text. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So all of a sudden, here's Paul and Barnabas sitting in the back row. That's kind of how I picture it. I ought to call on some back row people to stand up and preach this morning, okay? Just to make sure you're alert back there, okay? So here's what happens. So Paul stood up. And motioning with his hand, he said, men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. And he's ready. Here it comes. He goes back into the Old Testament, which they would know because the New Testament wasn't written yet. And he goes back into the Old Testament, and he begins to just talk to them about the Old Testament. There he begins to unpack it. But I note that he was ready. Now, quick caveat. Peter said in 2 Peter 3.15, be ready always to give an answer of the hope that is in you And to put that verse back in its context, Peter is writing to a people who are suffering. And he says, listen, when people look at you and you're suffering and they say, how do you have hope? You better be ready for an answer. Here's the picture. You and I shouldn't say, well, life's hard now, so who would want to know about Jesus when my life is hard? That's exactly when people would want to know about Jesus. That's what Peter said. 13 times he says, you're suffering, 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 suffering. And then he says, listen, be ready always to give an answer for the hope that is in you. So Paul stood up and he starts to preach. And here's what happens. Here's what I want you to see. When you start to talk in humility, ground your conversation in the Bible, not your experience, not what you have done, and focus on what God has done. Ground your conversation in the Bible and focus on what God has done. This is exactly what Paul does in this text that we're going to unpack. He just goes right back to the Bible. And and by the way, this is really valuable because sometimes I understand God has spoken to us and we engage in these personal experiences with the Lord where he speaks through the word in a very providential kind of moment. and, And it's easy for us to go to that moment. I just want to remind you, don't, uh, let me show you a text real quick. I wasn't planning on this, but jump with me to 2 Peter. Um, if you have your Bibles, go with me to 2 Peter real quickly, because I want you to see how the writers do this of Scripture. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Now, you may remember that the Apostle Peter is one of the few people to see Jesus transfigured. Remember that? In the Gospels, there they are on the mountain. Peter, James, and John are there. Jesus changes. He, he appears as in a bright light, and, and, and Moses and Elijah show up. It's a really amazing moment, okay? I'm going to tell you right now, if I had had that experience, I would never stop telling about that experience, right? 
Like, that's my story. I'd say, hi, my name is Phil Moser. I was at the Mount of Transfiguration. Okay. Like, that's how I'd introduce myself, right? Uh, hi, my name's Phil. I saw Jesus. He lit up. Okay, like, I, I mean, I'd be saying that. Okay. What I want you to see is what Peter does with that. Look with me back at, um, back at verse 17. For when he, that is Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's where they heard it, right? Mount of Transfiguration. We ourselves heard the very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, that should be the end of the sentence, but it isn't. Look at what Peter says. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but, God, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter says, that was my experience. That's not as important as the Word. That's powerful. If Peter, having seen Jesus transfigured, says, that was cool, but the Bible is even more powerful. It's made more sure. Then you and I would do well to be careful that when we talk of Jesus to others, we get back to the scriptures as quickly as we can. Ground your conversation in the Bible. Focus on what God has done. That's exactly what Peter is gonna do. And just by way of reminder, it's that it's the power of the Word of God that's actually going to bring about change. A number of years ago, I was uh, on a radio show with a friend here from church, and we had the chance to interview Mike Smith. Now, that's a big name if you're from here, and if you're not from here, that's still a big name, okay? So I remember that before we had a chance to interview him on the radio, a friend of mine said, Phil, you need to hear how he became a Christian. And so that's my question. My only question for him on the radio is, Mike, please tell us how you became a Christian. And I remember when I asked that question, I was totally caught off guard with what he was about to say. This is what he said. He said, you know, um, frankly, I should have been happy, and I wasn't. I had five cars. I had a five-car garage. I had all these things. And yet I walked outside my house one day and said, why am I not happy? And he said, I remember that there was a man who had spoken at our, at our Phillies chapel and his name was Wendell Kempton. And I thought, you know, he said, if we ever had a question, we should call him. And so he said, I called him. And I said, hey, I don't know why I'm not happy. And Wendell Kempton said, he said he dropped everything. And he said, why don't you come to my house and we'll talk about it. And he said, here's what happened. He said, I went to his house at 8 o'clock in the morning. And he taught me the Bible until 5 o'clock in the afternoon. He said, all he did was teach me the Bible. Like he started in Genesis, and by 5 o'clock, he's wrapping it up in Revelation, and he is explaining Jesus to me in the whole Bible, right? And he said, I just said, that's what I need, and I became a Christian, right? And I remember thinking, how cool is that? Like, this is a man who basically just taught the Bible, and the guy who was looking for Jesus found Jesus, right? Why? Because the Bible is taught. It wasn't a quick, short, let's do this quickly it was a careful exposition of the entire scriptures. There wasn't a rush to it. In humility, ground your conversation in the Bible. Focus on what God has done. Let me show you that real quickly. Here we go. Acts chapter 13, verse 17. The God of this people, Israel. Now watch what's highlighted here. I want you to see how active God is in the process. Okay? 
Paul says, let me take you back. This is the part of the story you know. You're Jewish people sitting in a synagogue. You should know this. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. Here's what happened. God singled out Abraham. This is what Paul is saying. You remember God chose Abraham out of all the people. And he said, listen, I'm going to make you a mighty nation. And Abraham looks around and says, it's just me and Sarah. And we're old. And God says, I'm going to make you a mighty nation. And sure enough, that's exactly what God does. Seventy people that comprise the Israelites, that's all that they are. Seventy people go down into Egypt. Four hundred years later, they come out of Egypt two and a half million people strong. God chose Abraham, the father, and he made the people great during their stay in Egypt. And then with an uplifted arm, he led them out of it. What did we just sing this morning, Justin? Something about an outstretched arm, right? That was the phrase. That's this really cool phrase used in the Old Testament to say that God's arm is so powerful, right, that it just carries us. If you can remember maybe like... uh, your dad, or if you're older like me, maybe your son, reaching down and grabbing you with a strong arm and lifting you, okay? That's the picture. That's the picture. God literally, with an uplifted arm, led them out of Egypt. God did it. They could take no credit for it. Remember, these are imperfect people. God's going to do all this work, and they're going to head right out into the wilderness and worship idol, okay? Like, that should bring us comfort, right? God works with imperfect people. And I love verse 18. Look at this. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness, okay? Like, that's great. That's great. God not only had all of that power, but he was patient. And after destroying seven nations, that is moving those nations out of the land of Canaan, because he promised them that country, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And all this, Paul says, took about 450 years, 400 years in Egypt, 50 years in a, a 40 years wandering in the wilderness, and then add another 10 years for how long it took them to get into the land of Canaan as they took all that land back. And he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. In other words, he said, okay, I'm going to give you leaders, and he gave them judges. But you may remember in that process that the book of Judges always says the same thing. It says, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And in the end, the people asked for a king. Look at verse 21. And they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. Saul wasn't following the Lord. And look at verse 22. And when he removed him, he raised up David to be their king. Now, stop there for a second. When you're reading the Bible and you start to see words repeat themselves, you just kind of want to say, boop, there it is, boop, there it is. The next time you see this word raised, it's going to be the text we read this morning that God raised Jesus from the dead. just want you to see this. God is the one who is active throughout this entire process. It's not about the people saying, hey, we did a bunch of good works and we pleased God and that's why he chose us. No, it wasn't that at all. It was about Abraham being a liar. It's about David being an adulterer. It's about imperfect people that God says, I will shower my grace upon these imperfect people. And then it goes on to say, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. That should bring comfort. Whatever your sin, whatever your difficulty, whatever your challenge, whatever you've succumbed to, whatever you've rebelled against God with, God still saw David as a man after his own heart. And of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. I love that. See how Paul took all of that Bible 
and narrowed it right down to Jesus, just like Wendell Kempton did with Mike Smith. He just brought it right to Jesus, okay? That's what happens. And that brings us to this reminder, right? God uses imperfect people. We take no credit, nothing, no credit. We should learn to say, I'm glad God could use it. It's that simple. Simple thank you. Thank you, I'm glad God can use it. That's where our world should be. And, and I know in my own heart, as, as God has used me at times, my tendency is to start to relive those moments, relive them, relive them, relive them. And before long, you start to take just a little bit of credit for them. Can I remind you, we are all imperfect people. In fact, just to kind of keep us all humble, okay, just say, I am an imperfect person. Just say it with me. Nicely done. Now say it to the person next to you. Okay, now this is what I want you to say. Look at them and say this. I want you to just change it. You are an imperfect person. Say it to them. <laughs> okay, and there should be acknowledgement, right? Like the person shouldn't say, what are you talking about? You're less per. I'm more perfect than you're perfect. Okay, see, none of that fits, right? Why? Because we're all imperfect people. You cannot read the Bible. You cannot read the Bible and say, if I can do enough good things, I can go to heaven. The Bible is filled with people who did not do good things. God uses imperfect people, so we take no credit. But here is the key. God sent a perfect Savior, and he alone gets the glory. So let me just unpack that for you in our text this morning. He alone gets the glory. Three things. Jesus alone was worthy. Jesus alone was guiltless in death. Jesus alone fulfills the promise. And this is what you're going to see in just a moment, okay? So let's do this together. Jesus alone was worthy. Um, The text is going to teach us this truth. He is God and should be worshiped, pure and simple. Jesus, no reservation about this. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is God and should be worshiped. Now, we are told over and over again throughout the Old Testament that the only one we are to worship is God. Yet in the Bible, Jesus, in the New Testament, Jesus receives worship and he doesn't deny it. People kneel down in front of him and worship him and he never stops them. That's a problem. It's why C.S. Lewis said he was either either a, a, a liar, he knew he wasn't who he was and he claimed to be, he was a lunatic, he actually thought he was God when he wasn't, or he was Lord, he was God. Jesus doesn't deny them worship. In fact, like one of my favorite passages in the gospel record is when Peter is out in the boat with Jesus and Jesus was preaching. And so he said, hey, listen, Peter, push this boat out a little bit so I can preach. And when they're done preaching, he looks at Peter and says, hey, throw your nets in. Let's see what happens. Peter throws his net in and like every fish in the Sea of Galilee is saying, last one in Peter's net is a rotten eel. And they all swim as fast as they can, right? And Peter is pulling this net that's got more fish in than he's ever caught. Now, if you're a fisherman, you got one question, okay? When are we doing this next, <laughs> okay? okay? Like, what are you doing tomorrow? But that's not what Peter does. Peter buries his head down in the boat and says, depart from me for I'm a wicked man. Why? Because he knows he's in the presence of God. The same thing happens when they awaken Jesus and Jesus all of a sudden just uh, says, oh, man, it's a storm. Okay, peace be still. And the whole storm stops. They were afraid of the storm, but the text says that now they're really afraid because they know they're in the boat with God. 
This is the picture. Jesus alone is worthy. He is God and should be worshiped. And when we sing and when throughout the week we dwell upon him or we're listening to something on the radio, we just need to remember it's not just a cool song. It's us remembering that this is the one we will worship forever and ever. Jesus alone was worthy. And I love the way that Paul reminds us of that through John the Baptist. He goes all the way back. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Why? Because John is saying, listen, you are imperfect people. There is someone coming. The perfect Lamb of God is coming. You are imperfect people. You need to repent. You need to turn towards this one that is perfect. And as John was finishing his course, that is the course of his ministry, the people asked, the religious leader said, who are you, right? And he says, who do you suppose that I am? I am not he, meaning I am not the Messiah, No, behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Now remember, Jesus says of John the Baptist, there was not another man like him. Like that's pretty high recommendations. John the Baptist says, whoa, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. And the point is this, that I think it's wonderful that we think of Jesus as a friend, but we also remember that he alone is the one that's worthy. In fact, our English word worship comes from an old Anglo-Saxon word, worth-ship, that when we worship, we are acknowledging the worthiness of the one we are worshiping. John the Baptist says, I can't even untie his shoes. I'm not worth that. By the way, this is beautiful. The one that John the Baptist could not untie his shoes, that's the one who washed the disciples' feet. Are you with me in that? So Jesus, in all of his worthiness, still walks in humility. Here's the second idea, and it's absolutely critical. Jesus alone was guiltless in death. Now, sometimes, from time to time, we hear in the news of someone who spent 35 years in prison, and all of a sudden, the DNA comes back, and whoa, the DNA shows that they were never really the person that should have spent 35 years in prison. And immediately, we say, wow, to be innocent and to have to spend all that time in prison, that's a great travesty. The the point is this, that even though they spent that time in prison, they were not guiltless like Jesus was guiltless. They had done something wrong in their life. They shouldn't have served 35 years in prison for a crime they didn't commit, but even they have done something wrong. There's only one person ever walking on the planet. Well, I take that back. Adam and Eve gave it a try for a while, living guiltless, okay? But they didn't last very long. Only one person went from birth to death and never sinned. Just one, just one. Jesus alone was guiltless. He was innocent and therefore he was raised. Look at the text, it's beautiful. Paul says, and though they found in him, see the highlighted part? No guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. A few years ago, as I was reading through that account, I became convinced that the role that Pilate plays in the gospel record is just a declaration of Christ's innocence. That's all he does. He he says, I find no guilt in this man. This man is innocent. I find no guilt in this man. My wife said I should find no guilt in this man. I agree. I find no guilt in this man. That's what he says over and over again. Uh, by, By the way, I don't think we should crucify him. The crowd screams, crucify him. Pilate says, okay, crucify him. This is the point. Jesus was the only one ever walking on the planet who wasn't worthy of death, but paid the penalty of our sins by his death. And notice what the text goes on to say, verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. It's almost like there is this massive stamp of approval on Resurrection Sunday where God the Father says, whoops, I'm going to tell you, 
this man never sinned. It'll never happen again that a man lives their entire life without sinning, dies, and because they had not sinned, even death had no power over them. That's what happened. In many days, he appeared to those who were up, came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And there's a lot of witnesses, Paul says, and you know this, Paul brings it home. There's one final thing, and this is beautiful. We're going to wrap it up here. Jesus alone fulfills the promise. You say, what promise? What promise does Jesus fulfill? And this is tied back to our worship. But I want to show you there's three passages that Paul quotes from in the book of Psalms, Okay. Here they are. See the first one highlighted? You are my son, today I begot you. Down a little further, down there about verse 34, the end of verse 34, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Quotation from the, from the Psalms. Uh, actually, it's a quotation from 2 Samuel. Um, and then this last one. Therefore, he says, also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. There's three statements Paul makes drawing from the Old Testament when he explains this. So this is what we're going to call the promise. You say, okay, I want to know, what's the promise? Here's the promise. Watch this. Paul says, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Now, it's true that Jesus was God's son. But notice in our text that it seems to be attached, this statement, this today statement, seems to be attached to his resurrection. See it there at the beginning? Um, right there, verse 33 Um, that he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. And a little later, verse 34, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead. Now, here's how you want to think about Bible interpretation. Whenever you look at a verse, you want to look at what comes in front of it and what comes after it. And that's why this one particular writer says, Jesus was indeed the Son of God from all eternity and recognizes such throughout his earthly life. No question. But it was through the resurrection that he was exalted to God's right hand, enthroned as son of God, and recognized as such by believing humans. It was through the resurrection that he was declared the son of God with power in Romans chapter 1. The point is this, that, that this idea, you are my son, today I have begotten you, is in some way tied to God the Father saying, you are my son, and I'm demonstrating that through the resurrection. It's powerful. That's the first part, but it's not the only part. He goes on to say, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Now, this is important because you want to say, well, exactly what does that mean? And if you were to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, there's this really cool story back there. You probably know part of it. Part of it is that David all of a sudden wakes up one morning and says, why do I live in a palace? Because remember, in the Old Testament, they had this tabernacle where God was dwelling. That's how they represented God's dwelling. And the Spirit of God was dwelling in that temple. That's how he led them, right? So in the Old Testament, that's what they saw. And they never had built a temple during David's time. And so David woke up one morning and said, I live in a palace, but God lives in a tent. I want to build God a palace. And Nathan, the prophet, says, great idea, David. And then Nathan goes to sleep, and God wakes him up in the middle of the night, and Nathan comes back the next morning and says, bad idea, David. Okay. Just like that. And then, but that t- passage says something else. God doesn't want you to build it, but God wants to build your kingdom, David. This is really interesting. God all of a sudden says, this is your blessing. So what is David's blessing? Look at 2 Samuel 7, right here in this text, verse 16. And God says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Okay, David, I'm going to establish your throne forever. Now, that's a problem. You know why? 
because David goes into the ground and his body decays. So how is David's throne established forever? Ah, go back with me and look at this text one more time. Here it is. Notice the last one from the Psalms. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. This is tied to the resurrection of Christ. Jesus' body goes in the tomb for three days, and before it can decay, whoa, his heart starts to beat again, his flesh starts to feel blood again, and he walks out of the tomb, okay, in a physical body that's resurrected, but a glorified body that's resurrected. He's not a spirit. He's a glorified body. That's why he looks at Thomas, and he says, hey, Thomas, you don't believe this is real? Right here. Put your finger in my wounds. Thrust your hand in my side. They're, they're still wide open, okay? And, and what God is saying here is, listen, this was the one, Christ was the one who would establish the kingdom forever and ever. This is so important. Jesus alone fulfills the promise. What promise? That he will reign forever and ever. That's it. Jesus alone was worthy. He has gotten to be worshiped. Jesus alone was guiltless in his death. He was innocent and therefore raised. And Jesus alone fulfills the promise, he will reign forever and ever. Because that's what God promised David. And so when you read something like this, um, you are my son, today I begotten you. When you read this second idea, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Those blessings are that this throne will last forever and ever. Now, for just a moment, whatever you're going through, just ponder this thought. You and I, as believers in Jesus, are not only going to live forever and ever, but we're going to worship the one who will reign forever and ever, okay? This just isn't saying, hey, I get a free pass and I go to heaven, okay? This is us saying, this is the one I will worship forever and ever. And and the combination of those two things, that he is that powerful, that he is God, and that he loved us so much that he died for us, that is an incredible... I, I, I'm just convinced that we can't understand that on this side of the earth. We grasp it a little bit. We see, Paul said, through a glass dimly, but that's the best we can do. I'm convinced that the truth of that matter is that one day when we come fully to grip, grips in eternity with what it means that God in his power sent his son, Jesus, who lived flawlessly and died in our place with all of that power, that when we come to grips with that, we're going to say, this is how eternity works. I got to worship him forever. Because of that. One final thought, here it is. Imperfect people need a perfect savior. That's the story. That's the story, probably, if I could put the Bible in six words, those would be the words. Imperfect people need a perfect savior. And what God did was he sent his son, the perfect savior, who will reign forever and ever. And as we worship him, live with him forever and ever. We will worship him forever and ever. Earth is practice. You with me in that? Earth is only practice for eternity. That's what it is. It's us learning to love God well here, us learning to serve others well here, us learning to worship well here because it's just practice for what all of eternity's gonna be. Summary, there it is. God uses imperfect people. We take no credit. God sent a perfect Savior. He alone gets the glory. We've saved some worship time for the end of day because I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. And I just want to invite you where you are this morning. Maybe you've never placed your faith in Christ. 
Maybe you've been listening. Maybe you've been thinking about it. Maybe you've enjoyed the music. Maybe you've been listening to the word. Maybe you've been saying, oh, that's cool. But here's what I want to tell you. There comes a stage where we have to say what Jesus did just wasn't for everybody else. What he did was for me. Remember, years ago when we were interviewing a uh, one of, a young lady from membership, I just tell, said, tell me, how did you know you became a Christian? She said, I'd always known that, I'd always read that God did this and that he sent his son and that he loved the world and that his son came to die. But for the first time, she said, I understood that was for me. It was for me. And I realized I needed that Savior. And I bowed my head and said, I'm placing my faith in Christ alone. When we sing this morning, if that's your condition, if you're kind of on the fence wondering, I would encourage you just not to sing, but just to receive Christ. Just say, I believe that he did that on the cross for me. Place your faith in him. Don't hold back. Don't hold back because this is the one you're gonna worship when you're Christian and not separated from him because you're a believer. You're gonna worship him for all of eternity. So let's do that together. Will you stand with me? Father, it's been a privilege to look to your word this morning. And when we sing, we sing of your greatness. We are humbled by your greatness and the fact that you still sent Jesus to die for us. We realize we have a responsibility to tell others about Jesus. We realize we have a responsibility to submit to Jesus leading in our lives. But Lord, we look forward to the fact that we can do what we're about to do for all of eternity because we'll never fully grasp what it's like for the God who created everything to come and die in our place so that we could live forever with him. And we thank you for that. Help us sing to give you glory. Help us live life this week to give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We trust you've been encouraged by today's lesson. For resources to help you move forward in Christ, we invite you to check out our website, aboutfbc.org, or our Facebook page, Fellowship Bible, Mullica Hill.